all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. Hey, and welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, CW2 helicopter pilot in Vietnam in 1969. I want to welcome you to our program today. We've got some great information for you. We've got a great author that's going to be talking helicopters and all kinds of things about uh, a particular battle in uh, Vietnam. So I'm real excited for, to have Bill Reeder on our program. Well, we've also got uh, a guest that's going to be kind of reviewing the PACT Act again. I know we talked about that in a great detail last week but there are some things that have occurred during the week and i thought it was important to bring her on to uh, refresh our memories uh, but before i get to our guests there's two things i want to remind people of number one is it is uh, suicide prevention month and as we know there are uh, the veterans and military veterans seem to have an unusually high number of suicides so i wanted to uh, get on your phone after the program and check on your buddies and, you know, just check on them, make sure that they're okay and so forth. And, you know, if you need to, if they need help or anything like that, they can always call the Veteran Crisis Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255, and just press number one. And there's always somebody there 24 hours to help you out if you need to. But, yeah, do one of those. I think it's the American Legion thing. You know, reach out to a buddy and uh, check on them, make sure that they're okay. The other thing coming up, is uh, not quite as serious, but it is serious to us here at Veterans Radio. And that is going to be our first fundraiser ever to uh, called Radio on the River. And this is coming up on the 25th of September here in southeastern Michigan. And we invite everybody that's listening to us on our local WAM station and WTTK uh, to come on down and uh, meet the crew and have a good time in the afternoon. We are going to be having special guest storytellers from local area. We've got, uh, we've got, we've got Marine pilots. We've got a World War II veteran. I think we have a donut dolly there. We've got, of course, some Vietnam veterans, all storytellers there to, um, tell their stories, of course. And then afterward, we're going to, you know, just kind of celebrate, uh, the 19 years that we've been doing veterans radio here. And then to, to end up the day, we're going to do a live broadcast from radio on the river. And, uh, that should be interesting. <laughs> Hope we have some Navy guys there. And, uh, so we're encouraging you to come to do that. Of course, we're looking for sponsors. We're looking for, uh, auction, uh, silent auction, um, gifts types of things. And if you can't make it to, uh, radio on the river, you can always, uh, make a donation through the site. So if you go to veteransradio.net, right at the top of our screen, there is a big banner and it says radio on the river. Just click on that and it'll take you through and, uh, let you know whether you can buy tickets, make a donation if you want to. Uh, provide gifts for those silent auctions, that's the place to do it. And we will contact you and find that. So it, it, we're looking forward to it. We think it should be fun. We're hoping the weather obviously will cooperate. Uh, one of our board members has a home right on the Huron River here, and it's a beautiful view. That's beautiful. It's going to be fun. They've got designer drinks. They've got food is being catered, catered uh, from uh, Mission Barbecue, um, some other places. So Come on out. That's Sunday, uh, September 25th. It runs from 2 to 5 p.m. And if you want to stick around for the radio program, we're going to be out there in the fresh air. That could be kind of interesting, I think. So we encourage you to do that. 
before I switch into my first interview, we've got to thank those sponsors that we do have currently. And number one on the list is Legal Help for Veterans. And Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veterans' disability claims. So give them a call. That's Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's a leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. If you want to do business with the federal government and some corporations, uh, you need to be veteran-owned. So you can get certified for that. Uh, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 800, I'm sorry, that's 888-237-8433, 888-237-8433. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information, you can go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. To learn more about these organizations and their services, as well as how you can become a supporter of Veterans Radio, we encourage you to go to our website, that's veteransradio.net slash our sponsors. And finally, we want to make sure that we don't forget our local veteran service organizations who have uh, helped us out over the 19 years with monetary support on a lot of stories. So the uh, Irwin Preskin American Legion Post 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310, both in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thank you. We can't do our program with your without your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our first guest coming right up right now is, as we mentioned, last week we were talking about the PACT Act. And many of you are familiar with that, or maybe you're not, because we're going to learn a little bit more about it right now. Uh, joining me on our line right now is Deanne Bonner-Simpson. She is a legal counsel at Legal Help for Veterans. And she's going to talk to us about some news that has occurred with the PACT Act. Deanne, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks, Dale. I'm glad I'm here. And you're right. Something just happened a few days ago um, that the PACT Act um, affects different eras of service. But the one I think that's getting the most news right now is probably the, the burn pit presumptive conditions that have been added. And the, um, the big news this week was that Secretary McDonough went ahead and um, granted the presumptive service as of the date of the PACT Act being signed into law, which was August 10th. Now, that's a big change because they were um, being phased in over several years, these new uh, 23 presumptive conditions that are being added, and that is for burn pit exposure. Uh, those were people who served in Southwest Asia, um, Somalia, and Uzbekistan. And there were, uh, if I could list off those countries, if it would be helpful to you. Well, I'm, I'm, I have to assume that the majority of them are going to be Iraq, Afghanistan, and probably Kuwait and mm -hmm. those areas. But I, I did remember seeing the list, and it was kind of very uh, comprehensive and inclusive, it seemed. There, there, there are um, several types of cancer that are um, being added, um, head, neck, respiratory, gastrointestinal, reproductive cancer, lymphoma, lymphatic, kidney cancer, brain, melanoma, pancreatic cancer, several uh, respiratory conditions that were new presumptives, including COPD and emphysema, um, and um, pulmonary fibrosis. And also uh, glioblastoma was added, which is a, a cancer. Um, now, this is in addition to the presumptives that were already in place for asthma, sinusitis and rhinitis, 
But what changed about those three is um, initially you had to have those conditions manifest within 10 years, and that has been lifted. So that's not uh, anymore a requirement to, to have a presumptive service connection for those conditions. And like I said, any, anyone who served in the qualifying geographic regions with these diagnoses as of um, August, 10, August 10th of 22, those are presumptive and people can go ahead and apply now. I think that's great that they can do that. It's, um, you know, and I know we, we talked about it last week of encouraging people to go ahead and file your claims now. Get them started. Um, you know, the VA had, has a tendency to get overwhelmed quickly. If, uh, you know, we, we hit them with a, with a flood of uh, new claims, but hopefully the new system will be able to handle that a little bit easier. And we also added, uh, two more conditions for Agent Orange survivors and their families, correct? Yes, there were two. Um, hypertension is one of them. And the other is called monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. Uh, it's a condition that isn't extremely um, well-known in the general population, but is something that Vietnam veterans with Agent Orange exposure, is it's seen in. And the other thing about Agent Orange is there were also some geographic location changes for um, presumptive service connection. So um, in addition to the already um, known Republic of Vietnam and 12 nautical miles off of Vietnam, which is often called blue water, um, exposure. There's also now presumptive service connection if the veteran served in Thailand at any of the United States or Royal Thai air bases um, from January of 62 to June of 1976. And that is regardless of where you were located. In the past, the VA required the veteran to have a certain MOS or to serve only along the perimeter. That has changed now. If you served there during that time period, you are presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange. They also added um, Laos and Cambodia uh, and some certain locations within Cambodia and Guam or American Samoa um, territorial waters of those two places. And then the last one that was added is Johnston Atoll or on a ship that called at Johnston Atoll. So those are some new geographic locations and that expands the uh, ability of Vietnam era veterans to apply for these presumptive conditions for Agent Orange exposure. That's that's kind of a little overwhelming, I think. It's a lot. (laughs) It is. And, you know, again, for our listeners, we want to make sure that you go and check out these things. I mean, all you got to do is type in the PACT Act and you can find a great deal of information. The VA has a great uh, couple, a lot of pages on their website that you can find a lot of information. And of course, we encourage our audience to go talk to their local VSOs, veteran service officers, or uh, claim people such as Legal Help for Veterans and some other organizations that are out there. Um, Deanne, as I mentioned, is a, is a legal counselor at Legal Help for Veterans. And I'm a, I have a feeling that your caseload is going to start to increase. You know, we're getting a lot of questions. And honestly, a lot of our clients that we already represent are now starting to qualify for some of these. Um, so we're, we're asking, um, you know, everyone in our office that we're reviewing our files and we're asking our clients uh, about their um, conditions to see if we can help them get some of these presumptive conditions. So um, I, I guess a, a quick question for you while I'm thinking about it is supposing that a, that a veteran unfortunately died from one of these conditions, let's say, 
And of course they were, you know, they had been refused benefits earlier on for whatever reason they had there. Should the survivors, uh, the, the spouse, you know, look into reopening a claim or somehow can they do that? If the veteran, if, if the claims were for the new agent orange related presumptive conditions, the PACT Act does provide um, for survivors to be able to go back to that original date uh, in the past that the veteran before they had passed away um, originally applied and was denied. Now for the other conditions, we don't have that um, built into the PACT Act, but if a veteran passes away while a claim is pending, then the survivor can go ahead and apply for survivor benefits, um, for accrued benefits. And any time a veteran, sadly, passes away because of a service-connected condition, a survivor can apply for um, what's known as dependent indemnity compensation, often called DIC. So um, the special thing about the PACT Act, though, is for those Agent Orange claims, the hypertension um, and the monoclonal gammopathy, if the veteran in the past had applied and was denied and didn't appeal it ever, the survivor can go back to that original effective date just for those Agent Orange claims. That's important to know. And that can be a couple of uh, nickels in your pocket if you, once you are finally, if, if you are approved for the claim. Yes, the back pay would go back all the way to that effective date. Wow. Well, I did, Deanne, thank you very much. I think that's that's very helpful information and it's something that our audiences, I really encourage you, as I said before, to, you know, to, to check these out. Go to the VA website, va.gov, and, you know, just type in PACT Act and you'll get hundreds of pages of information there. Or, you know, contact your local veteran service organization or our agent and let them just let them see, you know, tell them what your situation is and they'll be able to guide you and whether it's, you know, if it's, it's going to be a good claim or it's not going to be a good claim, it can, can't hurt. And you can always go back and find out what's wrong. I mean, even, even as our generation, some of us are um, moving on in age. Um, we are finding that we, you know, some of these conditions, as you mentioned before, used to have a time limit on it. And evidently, you know, the time limit has been, t- been removed. So do it. Do it. Absolutely. Thank you, Dan, very much. Dan Bonner-Simpson from Legal Help for Veterans, one of our sponsors. Um, thank you. We'll be talking again sometime in the future because uh, Dan pointed out there's a lot of things in this act that we haven't even had a chance to, to you know, scratch the surface with. So we will be back. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Okay. All right. We're going to take a real quick break right now. And when we get back, our author guest, William Reader, Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Crosses, the last Army POW during the Vietnam War. He's got a new book out entitled Extraordinary Valor, and it's a story of uh, of an American uh, Special Forces advisor and a Vietnamese paratrooper uh, commander. And anyway, it's a, it's a great story. You're gonna you gotta stick around for this. So uh, you're listening to Veterans Radio, and we will be right back. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Staff Sergeant Drew Dix was working on a CIA project near Cambodia when the Tet Offensive began. Details after this. 
If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Dix's mission was to coordinate intelligence gathering with a unit made up mainly of indigenous Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Chinese Nungs. In late January... Dix and his men were operating with part of a SEAL platoon to get information about a rumored Viet Cong offensive. On January 31st, Dix's unit returned to base to find the Tet Offensive had begun and the city had been overrun. When they tried to land, they encountered heavy fire. One SEAL was killed, the others pulled out, leaving Dix with only a handful of indigenous soldiers. He moved through the city, picking up pockets of friendly soldiers. His first mission was to rescue an American nurse. Then he brought several CIA employees to safety. Dixon and his men moved through the city in an effort to liberate it. He assaulted a building alone in the face of heavy fire to rescue two Filipinos. He killed six Viet Cong and brought out the men. Dixon and his men fought through the night, taking back the hotel, theater, embassy house, and other buildings. On February 2nd, after 56 hours of battle, the city was freed. Dixon's men had killed an estimated 200 V.C. He was presented the Medal of Honor by President Johnson on January 16, 1969. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and my guest today is William Reeder. And I was talking to Bill earlier on today, and I'm going, I know I've talked to you before, and it turns out that I had. In uh, January of 2017, he was on our programs, and we were talking about his book at that time was called Through the Valley, which was the um, story of his capture as a POW and, and the adventures and things that he had to go through to uh, get home from that. Well, I, I, was, I recently received another book written by Bill Reeder, and let me give you a little background on Bill again. He enlisted in the Army in 1965 had two tours of duty in Vietnam. The first time was flying OV-1 Mohawks as a reconnaissance pilot. And then he, he comes home and he goes back to flight school and learns how to fly a Cobra, goes back to Vietnam and uh, flies, you know, support missions, you know, as a Cobra pilot back in 1971-72. Didn't think he was going to see a whole lot of action, but uh turns out that it was a lot. And so I want to welcome our guest today, William Reeder. Thanks, Bill, for joining us. Thank you, Dale. I'm very happy to be uh, to be back and uh, and yeah, offer some explanation of going from one book about my uh, memoir of my POW time onto a book of uh, what turned out to be one of the most significant battles of the Easter Offensive in the Central Highlands. I think for a you know again we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I I came home in 1969 at the end of 1969. And I, in all reality, when I got out of the service, I didn't really think about what was going on in Vietnam because I was in college and the whole bit. And, you know, after reading your book, I'm going, 
holy mackerel, I missed out on a, a lot of stuff. Not that I wanted to be back there, but the point is that I wasn't paying attention. And I think this is something that we're all kind of probably guilty of. And I think that this story is really timely because it, it deals with an American advisor and a uh, South Vietnamese paratrooper. And, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, John Duffy to start with and then a, a, about uh, Colonel, yeah, Colonel Mai. Yeah, he he retired as a as a colonel certainly, um, and there's I pause because there's so much to tell about John Duffy. He is he is quite a uh, quite a human being and has lived quite a life, uh, which comes out in the book. I I probably should comment going in, and I don't know if you know this or if I shared this with you, uh, but I was reminded uh, with the uh, with the uh, Medal of Honor uh, snippet that just took took place. Uh, John Duffy, uh, on the 5th of July of this year, this past summer, was presented the Medal of Honor uh, by uh, by the President of the United States for his actions on Firebase Charlie, which is the subject of this book, uh, Extraordinary Valor, uh, The Fight for Charlie Hill in Vietnam. At the time of the battle, he was put in for the Medal of Honor. Uh, it was downgraded to a Distinguished Service Cross, equivalent of a Navy Cross, Air Force Cross, uh, and uh, and that was it until some years later, the individual who put him in originally for the Medal of Honor, uh, Peter Kama, his superior officer during this uh, this battle, uh, resubmitted the uh, the medal, uh, requesting an upgrade based on some new and additional evidence uh, that went through the Army bureaucratic process for years and years and years. Uh, but finally, it was boarded. Uh, it was recommended for the upgrade to the Medal of Honor. And John Duffy just received the Medal of Honor for the action in this book uh, on July 5th. So the book, uh, Extraordinary Valor, uh, becomes a Congressional Medal of Honor account, the story of John Duffy's Medal of Honor heroism on Firebase, uh, on Firebase Charlie. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, that, that's terrific. I read in there that, we, you know, that he got the Distinguished Service going, oh, come on. And, uh, you know, we, you heard us mentioning Charles S. Kettles, and you, you may be familiar with him. I don't know, but he was upgraded from Distinguished Service Medal to his Medal of Honor a number of, of years ago. And it, it took a fight to get this done. The problem is you got to have witnesses. You and, do, you know, and, and well, let's get into the story. And well, our audience will figure out that there aren't a whole lot of witnesses, uh, that survived this battle of, of, you know, Firebase Charlie. No, there weren't. And I'll give you a kind of a nutshell account, and then we can explore any of the other elements in, in further detail. Uh, very briefly, John Duffy uh, began his Army career as an enlisted man. He enlisted when he was 17 years old, went to jump school, found himself at 17 and a half with parachute wings and heading off to uh, Europe. Uh, he uh, then wangled his way down to uh, Bad Tolls, Germany, where there were uh, the uh, elements of special forces really beginning back in those days. And he got into special forces and got all the qualifications and eventually earned his Green Beret and then went off to officer candidate school. Uh, he went to Vietnam on a couple. He had four tours of duty in Vietnam, just to, to show you some insight into John. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, and he worked MACV SOG as well that you and I talked about earlier uh, on his third tour of duty, he was working MACV SOG at the headquarters when things were winding down. He wanted you, to see action. He, can you explain MACV SOG? For, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, uh, military you know, Assistance <laughs> Command Vietnam, MACV SOG, uh, was uh, the, the official name was Studies and Observation Group, 
which was supposed to be some uh, innocuous cover name that meant nothing. But any, anybody that knew anything always said, oh, MACB SOG, yeah, that's Special Operations Group. And they did uh, very, at the time, very classified work across the border into uh, Laos and Cambodia, uh, principally doing work along the Ho Chi Minh Trail with small teams of two to three American Special Forces guys with about eight to 10 indigenous, uh, usually mountain yard uh, tribal peoples from the highlands of Vietnam. And they did reconnaissance on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, they did uh, direct action strikes to destroy little supply depots and things. They did prisoner snatches and, and, and the like. That was Mac Uh So John found himself back on his third tour of duty and, and, and couldn't get out to a team. They kept him at the headquarters because SOG was standing down their operations and turning it over to Vietnamese special forces and training them. John wanted to see combat. Uh, so he, uh, he wangled a transfer to MACV again, military assistance command, Vietnam team one, six, two, which provided all the American advisors to the Vietnamese, Vietnamese paratroop units. Uh, and the paratroop units were the elite of the elite in, in South Vietnam fought extraordinarily courageously throughout the war. Uh, so John, in his advisor role with the uh, South Vietnamese paratroopers, was the sole advisor, usually teams of three or four advisors. We were short at the end of the war. John was a sole advisor with the 11th Airborne Battalion uh, and uh, was put in with the battalion uh, at Firebase Charlie uh, on uh, Easter Day, 1972. Interestingly, that was uh, to become the name of the offensive that was building up at that time that became the Easter offensive of 1972. And just to get briefly to the end of my little introductory comments here, John went in with that battalion. The battalion was down to about 70% strength, only had 471 paratroopers that went in. Uh, and John, uh, they were given the mission to defend that hilltop fire base to stop the North Vietnamese from taking it uh, in their, in their uh, Easter offensive uh, thrusts. Uh, fought that battle for two weeks. Uh, the last several days were the most intense, uh, but at the end of those two weeks of battle, out of those 471 paratroopers, only 36 survived to come off of that hilltop on the night of, uh, of 14 April with John, wounded five times in that battle. John was wounded five times, uh, and they were rescued uh, the next morning. The whole rest of that battalion was killed, captured, or missing in action. Uh, a few of the missing rolled back into friendly lines over the uh, over the weeks ahead, uh, but that that was the story in essence. And and really, the main part of that story that gets John the Medal of Honor is when when hundreds lay dead up on that hilltop uh, the night of the 14th. Uh, the rest were out of food, out of water for days, nearly out of ammunition. Uh, John volunteered to uh, to fight as a rear guard to give the battalion an opportunity to get off that hillside. Uh, Lay Van May, who was the battalion executive officer, uh, and now the battalion commander, because the commander, Colonel Bao, had been killed uh, two days before. Uh, May said, you're not going to fight alone, my, my comrade here. I'm going to fight with you. So those two fought a rear guard action on that hilltop to hold off the enemy as long as they could uh, for the uh, those survivors of the battalion to get on down off the hill and, and ultimately get rescued the next day. No one saw, thought they'd see John or May again. Uh, somehow, some way, the details are all laid out in the book. Uh, they did survive. They did get off the hill as well and got rescued the next morning. Well, 
where was the where was Firebase Charlie? I mean, I, you're, I'm trying to give the look. Yeah, no, and, and there's there's maps, in, there's maps in the, there's maps know, in the book. I know there's maps in the book, but you know, I'll we try to describe a a verbal map uh, for the uh, for the radio audience. Uh, Vietnam is uh, is a long. It's kind of like California flipped. If you look at the at the country, uh, South Vietnam's the southern half. If you take that southern half and go right in the middle, you've got the Central Highlands Two Corps. That's where all these operations were taking place. Up and it's about a twenty five hundred foot plateau. Uh, up on that plateau, there are mountain ridges to the east and higher mountain mountain ridges to the west. Uh, along that mountain ridge to the west, overlooking the valley, was a string of fire bases. Uh, the towns would be Pleiku to the south, Contum right there in the center of the valley. These fire bases on this ridge to the west and northwest Contum. Firebase Charlie was one of a string of several fire bases. And that, what was that called, that ridge line? That was called Rocket Ridge. Rocket Ridge. Uh, the okay. reason they called it Rocket Ridge is the uh, enemy, The well, in the old days, the Viet Cong, uh, used to uh, fire 120-millimeter rockets off that ridge down into the villages and roadways below. Uh, the U.S. Army... Uh, and the and the Vietnamese Army as well uh, constructed this string of fire bases up there in the uh, in the mid to late 60s and occupied had had uh, artillery weapons up there, uh, but by the time we get to 1972, uh, those were all occupied by by Vietnamese and now with the Easter Offensive, the Vietnamese Airborne came in to uh, to defend those. I think the the whole thing for the for our audience to understand, and and again I'm. I'm this is all hindsight that I'm thinking about, you know, is that there wasn't a whole lot of respect uh, for the Republic of Vietnam army, you know, the, Ar- no. the Arvins and um, you know, to, to, to read your book. And, and, and we're talking here with William reader and the, the book is extraordinary valor, the fight for Charlie Hill up in, uh, in two core. And, uh, you know, these were professional soldiers. I mean, you know, we have to remember, you know, Vietnam had been at war with somebody or other for, hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of years, considering that the Chinese always seem to always want to get in there. Right. Um, and that, you know, that there was, that there were professional army uh, paratroopers. There was a military academy in Dalat. There was, you know, it wasn't just a, you know, a drafty army. No, it wasn't. And, and that was one of my motivations as I got into some preliminary research. One of the motivations became uh, to tell this story of the Vietnamese military, which often gets, uh, well, I, I think I mentioned the book, gets mixed reviews. Yeah, those mixed reviews are most often, uh, and especially by those familiar with the, with the military and U.S. Army guys that served over there, most often pretty negative reviews. Uh, and a lot of, uh, or, or at least several, uh, Vietnamese units broke and ran un, under pressure. Uh, but that sure doesn't apply to the Vietnamese elite forces. Uh, they're special forces. Uh, they're rangers. They're marines. And I would put at the top of the heap, their airborne units uh, fought uh, always with uh, with valor, courage, uh, heroism. They were very, very proud. Uh, the Vietnamese called them the Mudo, uh, the angels in, in red hats. They wore red berets, and they uh, just put in some tremendous performance over over many years. And this one battle that I that I focus on in this book is just a highlight of, of how courageous the Vietnamese airborne was. I, I, yeah, I mean, it, if we look at this battle, you know, what they call the Easter Offensive, I think, you know, many, many people in our audience, especially if they're a little older, they're going to remember the, the words Easter Offensive. And, you know, this is kind of the, this is what now, that's 72. So we're, we're four years past Tet 1, Tet 2, 
each year it seems like they're, you know, they keep probing to see if they can find a weakness in there. And they're starting to get more and more buildup of troops. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of, of uh, NVA regulars, North Vietnamese Army regular troops, not just the Viet Cong. And, you know, they keep this area. And if you, when you get the book and you look at the map, you can see why they want to come through this pass, I guess, as you can say, because it's a direct line from there into Kantum and, and Pleiku and eventually to the coast because they're trying to divide Vietnam in half again. Yep. yep. A- absolutely. The, the, con- the control of this ridgeline uh, led to the control of the roadways coming into uh, Kantum, and that was the enemy's objective. Take Kantum, go down, take Pleiku, and then move east and cut South Vietnam in half, just as they had done to the French in 1954. Um, yeah, a comment on the Easter offensive that most people don't recognize. I think most veterans don't even recognize because when you ask people uh, that have some knowledge of the Vietnam War, you say, hey, what was the biggest biggest enemy campaign, uh, enemy offensive of the war? And most people will tell you the Tet Offensive of 1968. That is not true. Uh, the Easter Offensive of 1972 was, was significantly uh, more, more force, uh, a bigger offensive than the Tet Offensive of 68. Uh, of it didn't get that much notoriety because most U.S. forces were gone already. In the Central Highlands where I operated, there were no U.S. ground forces remaining. They had all come home. Uh, so the Easter Offensive doesn't get quite the notoriety that the Tet of 68 did. But in 72, North Vietnam sent every division they had south, save one that they kept in the north for for, uh, for the northern security. So they had regular army divisions going south to launch this offensive across the demilitarized zone into I-Corps, uh, across the, uh, from Cambodia and Laos into Tukor, where I was, and then out of Cambodia uh, towards Saigon as, as far as that big battle down at, at Anlock. With the Easter Offensive of 72, the war changed from a counterinsurgency to a large-scale conventional war. That's what I fought in in 72. That's what the Battle of Firebase Charlie really was. Well, as, as you just mentioned, there were no ground troops, and so all the, the, the South of Vietnamese were dependent upon our our, our air power and our air support. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, we, we know that you were a Cobra pilot. And for those of you that are not familiar with Cobras, is they are just, uh, they're dangerous. No, you, I mean, you could go, nobody can see me. I'm on Zoom right now. I've got my little Apache back there <laughs> over my head. And, you know, I, I have, I was talking to a friend of mine who was, is a, an Apache pilot. And she says, oh, we can, we can rain down, you know, lots of fire on, on, on everybody. And, you know, when I was there, I didn't even see a Cobra till the very end of my tour because we were still flying Huey Charlie models or hogs as they call them. And, but so a a, a Cobra had two pilots, one in front, one in the back, the one in the front fired most, what you were in charge of what the machine guns and yeah, the one in the front used the, the nose turret. It was a movable nose turret and he had a movable sight that uh, he had right in front of him. So where he pointed the sight, that's where the nose turret would point. And the nose turret had a uh, 7.62 minigun uh, and also a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. So he could fire uh, any combination of grenades and minigun. Uh, the guy in the back seat, uh, the pilot in command, uh, which is where I ended up flying mostly, 
uh, controlled the aircraft on the attack runs and fired the, the wing stores, which we had 2.75 rockets on the wings, uh, 10 pound and 17 pound rockets. Uh, so yeah, the Cobra was quite a devastating gunship, quite a machine. Some of our aircraft, we had three in the unit, also had a 20 millimeter Gatling gun mounted on the aircraft. And uh, that was always my favorite as, as a platoon leader to be able to get one of those 20 ships and take that into combat. Those really were devastating. Well, you know, one of the things also I want our audience to know is that in, in the in the book, Extraordinary Valor, you're part of you participated in one of the uh, resupply drops. Well, right. and actually, yeah, I and not the resupply. Drop. That ends up when I when I was shot down and captured, I was uh, providing support up at Ben Het. Uh, for a major enemy attack with tanks and anti-aircraft, all kinds of stuff. And, and the, uh, and I did three turns up there that morning. And the one that got me shot down and captured, uh, on that final run was escorting a resupply Huey in because those guys too were out of ammo, completely out of a- anti-tank ammo, almost out of small arms. And we escorted that Huey in and he got, uh, he got in and out. So the mission was a success, but I got shot down. Uh, my front seat got killed. My wingman took a 50 cal through the chest and survived, and his front seat flew that Cobra out of there. At Charlie, that was no purely gun support. In fact, for the last several days of the battle, their landing zone was closed, and they couldn't get any Hueys in there for resupply. There was no resupply. Uh, so we were just uh, shooting uh, bad guys, and uh, and John Duffy used us a lot for, uh, for uh, trying to neutralize the 51 caliber anti-aircraft positions around Charlie. So that was... Uh, some real dicey missions trying to engage uh, 51 cows uh, while also uh, uh, providing support, uh, neut- trying to neutralize attacking attacking troops. The, the, the stories of the battle itself for um, Charlie Hill is, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, would, it would give me nightmares. I can't, I can't imagine being on the ground with with so much noise I and mean, what duffy's job was mainly was almost sort of a forward air controller mm-hmm. i mean he was talking to a forward air controller. and again these are people that you, you know you, well they're just a forward these people are flying in and out of battle in little teeny tiny piper cubs almost and directing fire and calling in jets and and b-52 strikes and cobras and and uh Puff the magic dragons and every type of, of, of gun ship that you can imagine, you know, and, and they're, he's directing the fire as close to them as they can get. Yeah. And, and John thoroughly believes to this day, that's the most important part of an advisor's job is not so much to advise. In fact, he says, what am I going to tell these guys? I mean, yeah, I was special forces. I had combat experience, but they've been fighting as paratroopers and in combat for, for years and years and years and years. He said, my biggest role, the biggest thing I added to battle was to bring American firepower to bear. So you're right. John would talk to forward air controllers. He talked directly to the Cobras uh, and, uh, and and brought all that firepower to bear. In addition to Vietnamese artillery that was supporting that battle. And also, and I give a lot of credit in the book, uh, the Vietnamese Air Force, the Vietnamese A-1 Sky Raider pilots were huge heroes in this battle. And, uh, and a few of them got shot down. A couple of them got killed. Uh, just uh, really, really, really something. All the all the firepower that uh, that John could bring to bear, along with his his Vietnamese uh, comrades and counterparts, which enabled this this undermanned airborne battalion for two weeks to fight off 
the elements of two NVA regiments, a total of about eight NVA battalions uh, were, were against them. How many people, how many soldiers would that be approximately? How many soldiers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, okay, well, I each, always got confused when we were talking about battalions and divisions and, you know, how many people are in what and so forth. How many people? Yeah, so, oh, yeah, and, and I'm sure everybody else is. I'm talking here like everybody knows what battalions and, and <laughs> regiments and everything are. No, so that would be 700 and, and uh, 700 plus guys with the Airborne and John on the hilltop uh, going up against uh, a few thousand uh, of the uh, of the North Vietnamese uh, with uh, huge uh, pounding long range artillery, all this uh, anti aircraft weapon that I talked about. They they it was one one heck of a fight. I think I told you John got wounded five times in this battle. In John's career, uh, he got wounded eight times total. Uh, so he uh, in, in fact in D.C. I, won't, I don't want to get too far afield, but there was and I went back for his Medal of Honor ceremony. Uh, and there was a special forces reception for him afterwards. And instead of, and he asked the guys, they said, no, 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 don't. Cause he said, yeah, do you want me to wear my green beret or I've got this other hat and this other hat that John wears often? It's a black baseball hat and he has his eight purple hearts, little miniature purple hearts on it, four on each side. In the middle, he used to have his distinguished service cross. Now in the middle, he's got his Medal of Honor ribbon right there. Yeah. And the hat is a, is a battery advertisement hat. It says die hard. <laughs> So, so John and everybody loves it. So John's black baseball hat says die hard medal of honor and eight purple hearts. Eight. That's got him. I, I don't know. That's got to be a record. You would think not necessarily a record you want to get, but <laughs> no. it certainly is. Wow. I mean, so, all right, let's tell you, let's talk, step back a little bit and let's take a look at his Vietnamese counterpart. Okay. I want to talk about him a little bit now. Yes. Tell me about him. Lay Van May is is quite a guy. In fact, when I got into researching the book, and indeed, I, I told you when we talked before uh, that uh, my my initial attempt at this book was going to be just to, to uh, I agreed that there was a significant battle that needed to be uh, captured. So I was going to do a 10 to 20 page monograph to just capture the historical facts. But once I got talking to people, the survivors doing some research, that's when it struck me this really needed to be a book to tell the story. Uh, now that's going to bring me to Lay Van May because uh, he was obviously a hero of the battle, and I, I got the things that he did in the battle. And then someone told me, "Hey, this this officer, this this uh, this heroic officer, started as a kid from a poor farm family a few miles outside the uh, the, the city of Way, Vietnam, and he was just a, a, a kid that rode his family's buffalo out there while they were uh, uh, working working the fields of his little farm." And I immediately got this image. And so that's how I present him in, in the book. And I'll, I'll give you just a brief recap on, on May. Uh, the book starts out, the opening pages uh, hones in on the, on, the, on the climax of the battle. Uh, when the hill's being evacuated, the, the rear guards there, those two guys, Levan May and Duffy, the enemy is coming for final assaults. And, 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 it, and it appears that it was all over and those guys were going to die. I go from that then to a flashback. Uh, and I had this image w w once I heard it, uh, and that next chapter is called Boy on a Buffalo. And I start the, the opening paragraphs of that, of that uh, chapter is this kid's sitting on the back of a buffalo in this, in this muddy field uh, outside of Way, Vietnam. Well, that's Le May. And May was a hardworking young kid, had nothing going for him, but he studied hard. He was really smart. He made a name for himself in school, and he, 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 did well enough academically in his little village that it came to the attention of the educational structure there. 
and he ended up getting a, uh, a scholarship uh, to a school in way that was like a big private uh, prep school, high school. And he did very well there, uh, won an appointment to the military academy and got commissioned in 1963. And so he was fighting in combat since 1963 up to uh, up to 72. He saw a lot of action in a lot of different places, uh, some down in, in, uh, in the Tainan area around Saigon up uh, towards the Cambodian border. Uh, wounded several times. Uh, once he was in the hospital for three months from, from getting shot in the abdomen, uh, and uh, and just advanced in his career. Uh, finally got accepted into the Airborne. Went to jump school. Worked his way up in uh, in paratroop units uh, until he became the executive officer of the 11th Airborne Battalion. And he was the executive officer then in late 1971 when John Duffy managed to get himself. Uh, out of a uh, standing down MACB SOG to be the advisor to the 11th Battalion. And May is just a, a true hero. And you see that when you read the book and the fight at Charlie Hill, the things that May did, the heroic things that May did. Uh, in fact, when that battle was over and, and John Duffy put people in for, for various awards, uh, Levan May was awarded by the United States of America a U.S. Silver Star for his action uh, at Charlie Hill, you don't see any foreign foreign uh, soldiers uh, awarded a silver star, uh, but Leigh Van May was awarded a silver star by the United States of America. He also got a couple of really high decorations from the Vietnamese government, the, the equivalent of our Medal of Honor. He did. It's the Vietnamese uh, cross with uh, um, gold palm, which is not to be confused. All of us that served in Vietnam got a, got a unit award which is a Vietnamese cross with with palm. Uh, but this is a totally different, it's a, a Vietnamese cross with gold palm, which is the highest award for heroism uh, that Vietnam awards. And Leigh Van May got two of those. Uh, and and just, yeah, and, and, and to show a little bit about him also, this battle at Charlie took place. I talked about the 36 survivors, 471-man battalion, Duffy wounded, Mays wounded in the chest. Uh, he survives, he gets treated. He goes back to Saigon and immediately, uh, well, I think he spent one day with his family and then immediately goes back to their training area near Saigon to reform the 11th battalion, uh, 36 survivors, a few more stragglers coming in, uh, and they reformed the battalion, retrained the battalion in a period of a couple of weeks and redeployed up to first Corps, up to the Northern part of South Vietnam to help stem this Easter offensive that was taking place yeah. up there. He gets wounded again in that action, but leads the 11th battalion in the most critical elements of that battle to turn the tide and push back the enemy offensive, uh, which eventually resulted in uh, South Vietnamese forces retaking uh, all of the uh, all of I Corps up there from the uh, from the North Vietnamese, at least the city of Quang Chi and and the populated areas up there. I think whenever I read these books about what really happened over there, it's just it's it's it's, it's mind blowing to me. When we were talking with William Reader, his book is Extraordinary Valor: The Fight for Charlie Hill in Vietnam. When we've got these two two people from totally different cultures who have decided that they're going to stand and fight until the very end. And, and they do. <laughs> and, you know, they finally figured out, okay, here's an opportunity. Maybe we can get away. And they, you know, they, they slide off down the mountain and, you know, eventually do get away. But, you know, coming up, we've got about less than 10 minutes to go. 
I want to get to the point where uh, Lee Van May, Vietnam loses the war. 1975 in April, this whole thing that they it seemed like another practice thing for the uh, Easter operation is that it came to fruition in 1975. They came in again. By this time, we're pretty much all gone. And, yeah. and, the, and the, you know, the Congress has voted not to give them any more money. You know, we promised that we would always support them, and then we don't. This is a really black spot in our history. But beside that, so now this decorated hero, uh, you know, Lee Van May, he's got to get out of there. Because he knows that the, the communists, you know, from the north are going to come and get him. And yep. um, yeah, I, I paint the, the image where the main part of the book ends is when uh, Quang Chi City is retaken. Uh, and uh, on, the, on the citadel in Quang Chi, uh, there was a communist flag that was flying over when the North Vietnamese took it. Uh, Vietnamese Marines end up finally taking the, uh, the citadel. Uh, after a lot of hard fighting by everybody involved up there, the, the uh, South Vietnamese flag goes up on the Citadel and May's advisor, new advisor now, John Duffy was gone after they came back off of Charlie with all of his wounds and everything. Uh, the new advisor turns to May and says, essentially, you've won with a big grin on his face. So South Vietnamese has won this war. And, and, uh, and many people thought that at the time. That's 1972. Uh, okay, fast forward, May is a big hero of the battle. He gets promoted to full colonel. He gets uh, moved uh, to, to a, a promotion onto the uh, Vietnamese Airborne uh, staff in, in Saigon. He's the operations officer, chief of operations, and uh, and I'm sorry, I said full colonel, lieutenant colonel, uh, and, uh, and there he is. Um, 75 comes. You're right. U.S. aid was gone. All the Americans were, were gone from, from Vietnam. Uh, Congress uh, cut funds and said there would be. We, we just we were done with it. The, the, the country was tired of it. The Congress was tired of it. And, and the war, as far as we were concerned, was over. And Vietnam was left uh, to their own devices to try and, and defend themselves from, from the north. And without American air support, without American aid, that became impossible. Uh, so we get to April 30th, 1975. Uh, the NVA are coming into the, uh, into the outskirts of, of, of Saigon. Saigon's about to fall. Uh, May, uh, is on the, is in the op center with microphones and telephones and, and, uh, and someone comes in and tells him that the division commander has gone. He better get out of there. The place is falling. He gets in his uh, Jeep. Uh, goes home and finds his family, uh, his, his wife and his, uh, his kids. He has, he had three kids then and, uh, makes their way down to the docks, uh, the Navy docks. Uh, and he had waited so long until he left. A lot of people had left already. Most all the ships were, were gone. Uh, he finds one naval vessel, uh, that was under repair, but that they hoped to get working soon. There was a whole mob of people trying to get on the gangplank to get into it. Uh, he, that's not going to happen, obviously. Uh, May identifies himself as a paratroop colonel. And, and, and again, a lot of respect for the paratroopers, the Mudo, the Red Hats. Um, some naval person on the deck uh, throw a cargo net over the side. Those amphibious nets, you see Marines climbing up and down sometimes in the World War II amphibious movies. And May uh, makes two trips up and down this net 
uh, with his pregnant wife and his three kids. And one of them is just a little, uh, very, very young, almost baby, uh, and, and gets them up on board the ship. And the ship uh, finally gets repaired and gets underway and gets out to sea, uh, breaks down, gets some help from the U.S. Navy, uh, eventually finds its way to the Philippines. And, and, and May describes this scene, which I captured in the book, uh, very vividly. They got to the Philippines, and, and there's another story in the book about a carbine that John Duffy had gave him when he left, and he, he held this deer, and there's a whole carbine story in there. Uh, but they tell him he's going to have to uh, change into civilian clothes. They've all got to turn in their weapons. Uh, rather than turn in the weapon, he looks at the carbine, and he throws it into the ocean. Uh, and just before they changed out of their uniforms, all the Vietnamese soldiers and their families on board sang the Vietnamese national anthem for the last time. Uh, They got off the boat. Uh, They got processed in the Philippines and put on another ship to be taken to Guam and then eventually the, uh, the United States. It's a great story. And it's a, it's a great book, Bill. I really encourage our audience to go out there and and check this out. It's called Extraordinary Valor, the Fight for Charlie Hill by William Reader Jr. Jr. I can't show it to you, but I've got it (laughs) right here. And and also, I would go back and listen to our uh, interview that we did with Bill back in uh, 2017 about Through the Valley, and that talks about his experiences as a POW um, in Hanoi and, and so forth. Um, I, I can't thank you enough, Bill. Please let me know when you get another book that comes out and we can do this again. I'm, I'm just so pleased that we're able to tell the story of, of Duffy and uh, Lee Van Me. I think it's so necessary for our people to hear these stories. You know, as, as we find out as we go along, if we don't talk about these people, they have a tendency to just disappear. Yeah. And, you know, you can't have these people disappearing. And the good thing is right now is that both of these men are still alive, correctly? Well, they are. And interestingly, and there's a whole story of how they finally found each other. Le Van May lives in San Jose, California, ended up a hugely successful career in the United States. Uh, Duffy found him as well as the operations officer from the battalion. Hai Duan also lives down there. The three of them get together every year. Uh, I was down visiting just a few weeks ago, and we had a little reunion at May's home with May, Duffy, and Hai Duan, and had a wonderful barbecue and a, and a few drinks and, and uh, really enjoyed it. That's great. That is, that is, that's, that's a terrific ending of our interview today. And I'm glad that, you know, that there are people that did survive. So again, thank you very much for being on the program. The book, Extraordinary Valor, it could be found pretty much anywhere. Um, encourage you to go out and, and do that. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Dale. All right. We also want to thank, uh, Deanne Simpson for being on from Legal Health for Veterans. She has, Evidently, she's been fascinated by the story. She stayed online the whole time. So, Dan, thank you very much as well. You're welcome. I really wanted to hear that story. That was wonderful. <laughs> this is what we do. This is what we do, folks. We tell stories. And so we want you to notify us. If you have somebody that you want us to talk to, let me know. Send me an email at dale at veteransradio.net. We'll get a hold of them and get them on the air. If you have a book you think we should review, if you have a question about benefits, we, you know, we, we talk about that every month and, uh, you know, we, we are here. We want to make sure that that's our ultimate goal. We tell as many of these stories as we can, uh, 950 of them so far. And we encourage people to get, you know, get involved with that veterans history project that is out there. You know, if your grandfather or your uncle or your brother, you know, has come back, 
and doesn't want to talk about it, you know, kind of get him sit down and, and get these stories down. So I felt they'll have them. We've only got a minute to go. So I want to remind our audience to please uh, check out our website, uh, sign on or, or click on um, radio on the river. We always need your support. We can get this program going further and further and further out there. And many of our books that we talk about have been made in the movies. And I think this one that we just talked about would be a great one for that. So we want to do want to thank you. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all the other platforms that are out there. This program will be up on our website. All of our programs are in our archives. So I encourage you to go to veteransradio.net and uh, I'll ride along. I can see that Derek is getting ready to give me the signal. So I'm going to start this thing. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next week. Until then, you are dismissed. <laughs>